Hi, friends. Welcome to the very first episode of Rewind and Reflect. I'm your host, April Thompson, and I'm so excited that you're here spending your time with me. I've always wanted to do this because I feel like I learn about all of these things and just have no one to talk to about it. So I decided why not do what everyone does and start a podcast, you know? Now, do you ever hear about something as a kid that like relates to your local area's history and you grow up knowing about it, but you don't like know about it? Well, that's kind of what happened with me and today's story. Today, we're going to turn back the clock to the turn of the 20th century to talk about the Great Galveston Hurricane, which to this day remains the deadliest storm in United States history. And again, it's one of those things that I had always subconsciously known about. But let me tell you, there is so much juicy information to this story, and I just don't think enough people hear about it. And it really got me thinking why more people weren't held responsible in some way, shape or form. So grab yourself a little drink and a snack and sit down while I tell you about how a hurricane completely demolished the unsuspecting town of Galveston, Texas. So if we're going to talk about Galveston, it's probably a good idea for me to tell you a little bit about the place and why it was such a big deal going into the year 1900. So for those of you who don't know, Galveston is an island off the coast of Texas located on the Gulf of Mexico, and it's about 55 miles south of Houston. And in 1900, it was the third richest city in proportion to population in the United States, as well as being the largest city in Texas with a population of 38,000. And people were coming to Galveston to make fortunes in just about everything from cotton, mercantile housing, banks, publishing, flour and grain, railroads, land development, you name it, you can make money in it. And the island was so prosperous at this time that the Strand, which is a street on the island that you can still go to, was said to have 26 millionaires in a five block span and was known as the Wall Street of the Southwest. It was also known as the playground of the South, like the entire island, not the Strand, because there was so much tourism and it just seemed like everything was looking up and that Galveston was just the place to be. However, all of this prosperity would just come to a screeching halt on September 8th, 1900, when a hurricane demolishes the island. Now, if you're anything like me, you would likely just assume that meteorology and storm tracking just wasn't a thing. And to some extent, that is true. However, I did some digging. I did some digging. And I just found a lot of things that I think contributed to how big this tragedy was that aren't really talked about, at least not in circles that I run in. And I am going to tell you why. But first, I must tell you about Chief Willis Moore and the United States Weather Bureau, because he's one of the stars of today's show. So the United States Weather Bureau is the predecessor of the National Weather Service. You see, while meteorological study had existed for well over 100 years, it was the invention of the telegraph that would advance operational meteorology. So in the 1870s, the U.S. government created this organization in part to provide general forecasting, but also to provide storm warnings through telegraph and marine signals. Now, 
I'm not going to sit here and go on and on about the Weather Bureau's early history, but I will tell you that the early years of this organization are an absolute hot mess. Like you had people drinking on the job and not taking their job seriously. And even one of the previous chiefs was on the run from for embezzling funds from the government. So, yeah, safe to say that this organization was in shambles and didn't have the best reputation. But all of that would change when Willis Moore was elected as the new chief in 1895, and he took it upon himself to really turn this organization around. From what I gathered, Chief Moore believed that a lot of the problems that the Bureau faced was actually at the fault of the forecasters, and he believed that many of the forecasters were actually overwarning people and would be sent into a complete frenzy and that would make the Bureau look bad. So some of the things that he does to prevent this is to prohibit the use of the word hurricane, cyclone, and tornado in all U.S. Weather Bureau transmissions. Because again, he thought these words made people freak out, and he did not like that. So we can't use those words anymore. Chief Moore also decided that all storm warnings would have to come from the D.C. office rather than the local weathermen, which essentially reduced their jobs to checking the temperature and measuring the wind. And it didn't matter if a hurricane was at their front door, which we will learn later. Um, They were not supposed to make that call. So instead, you have one guy in Washington, D.C. issuing storm warnings for the entire country. And I don't know if you know this. It's very hard to be all over the country when you're in one place. And you would think that this would be kind of the extent of the issue, but it actually goes a lot further all the way down to the Caribbean. And I know what you're thinking. What the hell does the Caribbean have to do with this? Well, the answer just might surprise you, so bear with me. At this time, Cuba had been considered highly advanced when it came to forecasting, even more so when it came to storm tracking. And this is largely due to the work of Jesuit cleric Father Benito Vinez. Father Vinez was well known for his study of hurricanes and would even carry around a little notebook where he would describe and study cloud formations and he would cross-reference instrument readings and he would even interview ship captains to get their information to improve his ability to track and predict storms. And Father Vinez would eventually develop a model by which meteorologists could accurately determine that a hurricane had formed, how far away it was, and how fast it was moving and in what direction. Then he would start taking all of this information and communicate it with several islands across the Caribbean, essentially developing their own forecasting network. And this would earn him the title of Hurricane Priest. Kind of a big deal. Hurricane Priest. Now, Father Vinez would die before the events of 1900, but his successor, Father Lorenzo Gangiote, and I'm so sorry if I'm saying that wrong. I really Googled it a hundred times and I couldn't find anything. I'm going with Gangiote. So Father Lorenzo Gangiote would take his place and continue his work. Now to you and I, like just friends talking, this sounds like a great thing right? Like, why would you mess with these people? They're actively saving lives and using their knowledge for good. Well, 
After the Spanish-American War, the relationship with Cuba and the United States was not great, to say the least, and Chief Moore really wanted to reduce the influence of the Caribbean on storm forecasting. And this is likely because the United States, especially United States bureaucrats, didn't want to admit that someone, specifically the Cuban people, might be better at something than the good old U.S. of A. So as a part of this effort to minimize the influence of the Caribbean, on storm forecasting, Chief Moore assigns Colonel Henry Dunwoody to the U.S. Weather Bureau Station in Havana and William Stockman to the outlying islands to provide a strong American presence in the area. Now, let me tell you about these two clowns, OK? Colonel Dunwoody wasn't even a fan of meteorological science and often scoffed at the idea of predicting the weather and would even go as far as to say that predicting a hurricane was an act of difficulty nation, you know, like like magic. And William Stockman wasn't much better. Stockman was a veteran of the United States Weather Bureau, and he was a real piece of work, let me tell you, because he goes to Chief Moore, right? And he tells him that the Cubans had never even heard of forecasting and that predicting storms would be a radical change for them. And he even goes further to say that the only reason they have succeeded in forecasting is because they've been stealing and copying from U.S. Weather Bureau transmissions. And this is a bunch of crap. This is just blatantly not true. But he plants this idea in Chief Moore's head. And Chief Moore is very upset when he gets this information. And in response, he decides that he is going to shut down any and all communication between Cuba and the United States. So with the help of his buddy, William Stockman, he goes to the U.S. War Department, who controls all of Cuba's government-owned telegraph lines, and he requested that they ban any transmission about the weather, no matter how innocent. He also bans the U.S. Weather Bureau stations in Havana and New Orleans from making direct contact with one another. And you would think that this would be enough, right? But he goes one step further and calls up Western Union, you know, the telegraph company, and he politely requests that they put a priority on U.S. Weather Bureau transmissions. And if anything from Cuba should come through, it should be lost or conveniently shoved down, like pushed down the list of importance, you know? So Willis Moore, Chief Moore, had made it practically impossible for anyone in Cuba to contact the United States and provide any warning that a storm was coming their way. And on September 3rd, Father Gangiote, remember Father Vinez's successor, he's watching the skies and he observes a storm. And he notes that the storm wasn't yet a hurricane, but it was strong and getting stronger. And then on September 5th, a couple of days later, he is watching the skies again. And this little disturbance that damaged some railways in Cuba had now become a fully realized hurricane. And he notices that the clouds are moving west by north and northwest by north and that the prevailing winds are pushing the storm towards Texas. 
However, he couldn't report this to anyone in any meaningful way because all of the communication to the United States had been effectively blocked. I mean, yeah, he could have told Dunwoody and Stockman, but I mean, they don't even believe in meteorology. So what good was that going to do? Now, back in Galveston, life is continuing as normal. And on September 6th, the Weather Bureau office in D.C. did contact the Galveston office saying there was a disturbance moving over Cuba that Chief Moore called not a hurricane and that it was going to hit Florida, bringing heavy rain and moderate winds and move up the East Coast by Friday. And I think you and I are smart enough to know that this storm never hits Florida or we would be talking about the great Florida hurricane and not the great Galveston hurricane. But this message is received by head meteorologist Isaac Klein. And I'm not going to do a deep dive into his backstory, but there is something that I think is important to know about Mr. Klein. You see, he was very on record in saying that it would be impossible for any hurricane or tropical cyclone to hit Galveston and anyone who believed that it might happen suffered from, and I quote, absurd delusion. And you and I know that's just wildly untrue, but this is what Isaac is telling people and this is what he believes for years. And I guess you could say that there was enough circumstantial evidence for the locals to believe this as well, because most of the adults living on the island at this time had experienced some kind of tropical disturbance that often hit other areas and they just got some of the effects of it. And most of the damage that came from these storms was minor or considered a minor inconvenience. And this compiled with Isaac's claims about a storm not being able to hit Galveston um, convinces locals to vote against getting a seawall prior to 1900. So he gets the message that a storm is hitting Florida on September 6th. But he goes out on September 7th and he is taking his measurements and he's doing his job. And he's just noticing that something is definitely off. He notes that the barometer is slowly dropping and that the wind is blowing 17 miles per hour and the tide is high and rising. Now, if you don't know, dropping barometric pressure is a sign that a hurricane is coming. And while Isaac had never experienced this firsthand, he was no dummy. He knew what this signified, but he remains ever so calm and collected, strong in his convictions and just brushes it off. Now, it's said that his brother Joseph, who also worked as a meteorologist in Galveston at this time, was noticing all of the things that Isaac had noticed. But it seems that he was a little more worried about the readings and even brought up his concerns to his brother. But it seemed to just get brushed off. And this is a side note. It just seems that there was a lot of sibling rivalry between the two brothers. And I really couldn't find a direct source for it. But I do think beyond ego, this is a lot of the reason that Isaac continually brushes Joseph off. And that afternoon, Joseph leaves work and returns to Isaac's home where he lives. And he just has this sense of impending doom. Like he has this gut feeling that something is just not right and he can't shake it. And I'm pretty sure we've all been there and it's like not a good feeling to have. So he, but he goes home and he goes to bed and he's tossing and turning all night. And he's having these dreams that the Gulf of Mexico is taking over the backyard. And he wakes up at like four in the morning and he realizes it is no dream at all because he peeks out of the back of the window. I don't know if it's a back window, but he peeks out 
out of the window and it was all gulf waters in the backyard. And he wakes up his brother and tells him that the worst had begun. Now, early September 8th, the day of the hurricane, the weather was just odd. For much of the early morning, the skies were partly cloudy, but the swells of the ocean, like the waves, were have said to be very intense and very high. And the locals at first kind of continue their day as few usual. Men go to work and women are at home taking care of their children. And some people were even going to the beach to watch the waves because apparently these swells were just massive. And for most of the morning, no one suspects a thing. By mid-morning, the rain clouds start rolling in, and at first, children are playing in the rain, making rafts, just kids being kids, and the day continued, and people were noticing that the rain was not letting up, and by midday, the city is starting to flood. Now, for much of the day, it's unclear exactly what the clients are doing, but both brothers claim that Isaac was running up and down the beach begging people to evacuate and get to higher ground. However, this is pretty debated because there's no eyewitness reports that confirm this. And there were people on the beach, like I said, watching the waves. Personally, I don't believe they actually did this. I'll allow you to make your own decision, but it just doesn't match up with what I've heard about Isaac. So I really don't think that they were doing this. Now, at some point, Isaac does end up raising the hurricane warning flags without prior authorization from Chief Moore. And he also drafts a message saying that a storm was hitting Galveston and that the city was underwater and great loss of life must result. And it's Joseph's job to get this message sent out. OK, so Joseph goes all over town trying to get this telegraph sent off. But everywhere he goes, he learns that the lines had been down for hours. Eventually, he gets the idea to make a long distance call to the Western Union office in Houston. And at first, the lady on the other end is like, sir, I have like 4,000 calls waiting. What makes you so special? But he successfully pulls the can I speak to the manager card and actually explains the situation. And he does get the telegraph sent to the D.C. office. And that would be the last direct communication that that office and Galveston would have for like a couple of days. However, by this time, it was too late for anyone to do anything. And many on the island were just sitting ducks. There were slate roofing tiles flying around at high speeds due to the wind. Electrical wires were on the ground and the floodwaters were rising so quickly that there were many adults who were tying their children together and then tying those children to themselves in hopes that they wouldn't get separated or that the children wouldn't drown. And the entire scene was truly tragic as homes were falling apart and people had nowhere to go. And the Klein home where Isaac and Joseph would return to, there were approximately 50 people inside the home, including Isaac's pregnant wife and his three daughters, just trying to ride the storm out. And as the night progresses and the flooding gets worse, everyone eventually has to move upstairs to the second floor, which is about 15 feet above ground. And at some point going into the night, Isaac opens the door to the balcony and he's looking out and water is almost covering the balcony. And his balcony was 15 feet off of the ground and he his home is the only home left standing which I can't even imagine like it's pitch black there's nothing but the ocean around you and your house is going to fall apart and at this time Joseph recalls feeling strangely 
really calm. And he remembered a story of how a family member survived a shipwreck by hanging on to some debris. And he locks this in his mind and he starts telling people that when the house goes, just find something to grab onto and float with it because he just knows the house isn't going to make it. Like he's very aware of this. And when the house does break apart, Isaac gets sent straight underwater and knocked unconscious momentarily. But he does survive and is able to find some debris and hold on. And unfortunately, Isaac's wife would end up wedged against a piece of furniture and it just seemed like she got caught in between some debris and wouldn't survive. However, Joseph would rescue his brother's oldest two daughters who were 11 and 12 and Isaac would find his youngest daughter who was about six or seven years old at this time. Now according to Joseph's autobiography which you can buy and read um, he says that they just floated through the night for hours and it wasn't until just before midnight or just after midnight when they found a home that was on dry land and they were just grateful to not be in the water anymore. So the Klein brothers and the daughters survive. But at the peak of this Category 4 hurricane, the winds were said to have reached 140 miles an hour and the island faced a 15-foot storm surge. The storm destroyed more than 3,600 homes and hundreds of other buildings were destroyed as well. And every building left standing had become a shelter and residents were doing everything in their power to ensure that those buildings remained standing. Railroad tracks were destroyed. Ships had been ripped from the sea. And these homes just seemed to turn into matchsticks. Like there was just wood everywhere i highly encourage you like if you're curious to go look at the photos like it it was just planks of wood all over the place. Now, there is no exact number of how many people died during the storm. I have seen a range from 6,000 to 12,000, but the numbers that I see most frequently is actually between 6,000 and 8,000. And we'll never know the exact number because after the storm, it was just chaos and pandemonium. Many people had straight up abandoned everything they had owned in their entire lives and never returned. And there were many bodies that were just never identified or were pushed inland or never recovered. There were so many bodies that there are and there are testimonies on this that you couldn't go anywhere without bumping into someone. And there were people on boats during the recovery efforts and they said that their boat would just be pushing dead bodies out of the way and people would go outside with an oar to push bodies away from them, which is just horrific. And to address all of the dead, a burial committee was formed and at first they decided that they would just start burying the bodies at sea and they had people working day and night to weigh the bodies down and throw them into the gulf. And this committee went as far as to hold a group of black men at gunpoint and put them on a barge and just forced them to start dumping bodies, which is all kinds of terrible. And they were offered free whiskey in exchange to like mask the smell and I guess be able to deal with this. But I say the term free very loosely here because remember, they were being held at gunpoint. That is not free. It is do this or die. That is not an exchange. Unfortunately, however, many of the bodies would come back to shore and the committee had to elect to just start burning everything. They would burn bodies day and night with hundreds of pyres scattered across the city where people would watch their family, their friends, 
and their neighbors be burned. And the smell was so bad that it was alleged that you could smell it up to 100 miles offshore and that they were finding about 70 bodies per day until like November. And I did read that they burned like the last body in February. So for months, they're just finding and burning bodies. Now, as recovery efforts ramped up, the city of Galveston obviously needed to ensure that something like this never happened again. And these events would actually reshape the entire structure and landscape of the island. First, they developed a new form of municipal government that could handle the economic recovery of the city. And they also decided that they would build a seawall to protect the island. And they would also raise the city up to protect from future flooding. To break the force of the waves engineers recommended building a concrete seawall that was three miles long from the south jetty across the eastern edge of the city down the beach. They also raised the level of the entire city by picking up most of the structures and filling it in beneath with sand. And after the project's completion, the city was raised 16 feet and the entire project cost about three four. million. And both of these tasks would be accomplished by 1911, and the city would quickly be tested again when a hurricane hit Galveston in 1915. These hurricanes were said to be of similar intensity, but there was way less destruction the second time, with only eight lives lost due to timely warnings and preparedness on behalf of the seawall and raising the city up. Now, when I was reading all of this, what I really wanted to know is how they held everyone accountable. Because I just felt like there was a lot of oversight that happened and a lot of overstepping that happened. And unfortunately, the world is unfair and it seemed like everything worked out pretty okay for everyone. Willis Moore faced no professional consequences for his decision. And on September 28, 1900, he actually commended the clients and their assistant for heroic devotion through your efficient service and dissemination of warnings Thousands of people were enabled to move and were thus saved, which is just total garbage because we know that potentially tens of thousands of people lost their lives and there's no evidence that Isaac actually saved anyone's life. It just seems like this could have all been avoided to some degree if everyone had just stopped and listened. So it's really frustrating when they're acting like they just did it all right. You know, speaking of Isaac, he would unfortunately be devastated by the loss of his pregnant wife and would never remarry. Professionally, however, he would continue his work with the Weather Bureau until he retired. And as for Joseph, he was sent to Puerto Rico and he was really upset by this. And again, he just felt like Isaac had overshadowed anything he did. And this would ultimately lead them to being estranged. And when they both died, it had been years since they had spoken. Also, they died like a week apart from each other, like in the same year, which is all that's I always find that creepy. As for the city of Galveston, they would never reach such economic prosperity again. Again, it would eventually be taken over by Galveston and ter- Houston in terms of growth. I mean, to this day, the Great Galveston Hurricane remains the deadliest storm in U.S. history, with the second deadliest being Hurricane Maria in 2017, which claimed the lives of, of about 2,500 people. So I think the lesson here is to never say never. Maybe don't get too confident that you know what's going on because, again, people back then believed that this could never happen. And I think people do the same thing now and we're constantly proved wrong. So 
I just think it's a good idea that when it comes to Mother Nature, make sure you're taking the necessary precautions and be discerning and make smart decisions that are best for you and your family. And if you're interested in learning more about this story, there are many historical sites on the island that you can visit. And I highly suggest, highly, highly suggest going to your local library as there are all sorts of things you can uncover there as well. But that is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. I promise to get better at this, but I'm not going to lie to you. I am sitting in my closet right now. I hope you have a great day and thanks for hanging out with me.